Hey church, my name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 will be our primary text today. And I don't know about you, but man, I feel like I, uh, in different moments through this pandemic, find the edge of my ability, of my energy, of my uh, just you know, ability to hold it together. And this has certainly been one of those weeks. And so I just know how much I need God's word and that, how much I need uh, the truth and beauty of Jesus to guide me. And so th this is something that's just so good for our souls, especially in this season, to come to God's word and to allow the scriptures to reveal truth about who God is first and foremost, but also truth about what's going on in our hearts. And so God has been kind uh, to me as I've prepared this and has, I think, opened up and helped to teach me uh, things about my own heart. And, and so I trust that that's what this time will be for us as a church family. Um, and, and in particular, I think that uh, surprisingly, this single verse, I think, is one of the most helpful verses to give clarity about what it means to be the church in a particularly divisive time, not merely about the pandemic, but certainly as we are um, at the tail end of a very long and very contentious election cycle, moving into a new season, a new year. And, and so it really behooves us to, to ask God, what does it mean for us to be a people in the middle of this kind of divisiveness, not just in our country, but also in the church? And so uh, I'm asking God's help. I'm asking that God would make clear his will and his word to us today. And so uh, let's let's read Romans 3 verse 20 and then let's pray and and truly ask that God would would teach us today from his word to reveal sin to give us clarity about righteousness so that we can to leave behind or flee the evil desires uh, of the flesh and cling to righteousness and walk by the spirit so that we won't gratify the desires of the flesh so Romans 3 verse 20 read this way for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. These are the very words of God, and we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we need your help. I need your help. We're coming to your word because, as your disciples said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, and though that's true, many of us, myself included, spent much energy this past week going to other things, other places, other people, even to our own souls, our own hearts, and looking for the good, looking for the true, looking for the hopeful, and perhaps even just looking for a shortcut to get what we want. And so we're just weary of that because those things don't fill us up. Those things don't help us. We're weary of that. I'm weary of that. What I need more than anything is to be anchored and hidden away in your word and in your will. And so, Father, I pray you do that. Have your way in our church. Have your way in your people. Lead us. Convict us of sin. Give us clarity about how we need to walk in righteousness, to walk in accordance with your word and in the power of your spirit. I want to be available to you to that end. So help me to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, Amen. Well, as I mentioned today, we're concluding a particular thought that Paul began way back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Um, and, and really, the centerpiece of this opening section from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 320, have been the righteousness and the wrath of God. So if you have felt as though there has been some uh, repetitive nature to this series of sermons, this series of, of teachings around uh, Romans, you will have uh, been correct in your assessment because Paul has consistently and constantly made sure that we understood that God is righteous and that his wrath is coming and that we sit underneath that, that wrath, or as we looked at last week, underneath the law, that we are under sin. And so we have to go back from, to the launching uh, pad, if you will, the launching point of that theme in this particular section to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Let's refresh our recollection. So flip to the left uh, if you've got your Bible open. 
And so Paul says, I'm, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul tells his readers that he is not ashamed of what? The gospel. He is not ashamed of the gospel because it, it, it's what he knows, it's what he has experienced to be the power and the righteousness of God. So there's where we get the theme of righteousness that carries over and is woven from Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, all the way through Romans 3, verse 20 that we'll be considering today. Where do we get the theme of wrath? Well, the, the fullness of his, his opening theme comes in Romans 1, verse 18. So if you're in Romans 1 still, look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And, and that word for in verse 18 is really important because it connects. It, it gives us this logical flow, this thematic flow, a grammatical flow, if you will, that God's wrath is what the gospel saves us from. That God's wrath is ultimately what we sit under, and yet the gospel, the righteousness and power of God to save dead sinners like you and like me is ultimately found there in the gospel, the righteousness and the power of God to save us. And so God's holy judgment is what we have learned over and over and over again in this opening uh, series of passages is that God's uh, God's judgment, God's wrath is, is over us and it is a righteous judgment. It's an accurate assessment of our sinful condition. And these two ideas, God's, God's righteousness and God's wrath, overshadow everything that Paul says from Romans 1.18 all the way through 3.20. And Paul explains that we are under God's wrath because we have all fallen short of God's righteousness. And so because we do not have his righteousness, we are under his wrath. In fact, this is where now we land at the, this uh, portion of the letter where Paul sort of summarizes and captures all of this in Romans 3, 19 and 20. So let's, let's read it again with the context of the verse that we looked at last week so we get the fullness of what Paul is saying here at the end of this particular section. Now, we know that whatever the law says, verse 19 tells us, it, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law, hear this, comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here we have both ideas, God's wrath, the whole world will be held accountable to God, and we have his righteousness, that no human being will be justified in his sight. Now, why that's God's righteousness is because that word in the original language, justified, is actually the same root word in the original language in Greek as righteousness or as righteous. So the word justified means to be pronounced innocent or to be pronounced as righteous. It's a forensic term, meaning that is a legal proclamation of innocence. It's a legal proclamation standing of righteousness. So at the conclusion of this chapter's long passage about God's wrath and God's righteousness, what do we learn at the, at the conclusion of this particular opening section? Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need good news? Because we are under God's wrath. And we are under God's wrath because he is righteous and we are not. Now, this may seem pretty basic and that what's been on repeat, but, but Paul doesn't repeat himself because he forgot he already said it. He, he repeats himself, and God always does this in his word, that God repeats himself because he knows that we have forgotten and that we will and we are prone to being forgetful. Therefore, the only way that we have to avoid eternal and holy judgment over God's wrath and to be justified, the only way that we can be made righteous, the only way we can be justified is to be made and declared righteous. We need to be justified. And, and this is where what Paul said in, in Romans 1, 16 and 17 is so critical, that there is a way, there, there is the gospel. But what Paul has identified over and over again in the minds and hearts of his readers, and certainly us, specifically his Jewish readers, and specifically we who are prone to a religious mentality and a sort of religious behavior, is that we think and we live as if we can save ourselves. 
He covered this in two different kinds of ways. He covered this, Paul did, in Romans chapter 2 when he reviewed all of the ways that lawless people tried to find the good life in sort of lascivious living and living for the moment and living for the now. Perhaps that describes you. Others live in this sort of legalistic way and trying to save themselves through the law. In, in other words, Paul highlights this in judgmentalism and in the condemnation that many times that we can have of other people when we live religiously. And so in, in either case, these are two ways in which we try to save ourselves, bring ourselves to the good life, try to take hold of joy and happiness in this life. And what Paul is saying is that both of those, what he's been saying, is that neither of those lead to what it is that we are chasing. None of those lead to being justified, being made righteous, and ultimately being whole, finding the good life, and being joyful. Specifically notice that in verse 20, we think and live as if, particularly those of us who had this sort of religious mindset, that, that works of the law will save us and make us righteous. In other words, a mindset persists that when we obey what the Bible teaches, that somehow this makes us righteous in God's sight. In fact, maybe that's why you are even showing up. This is why you are watching this liturgy and participating in this gathering and hearing this sermon is you want to find something to do to go and impress God and demonstrate to him that you are righteous. That's what Paul has been harping on the whole time. That doesn't work. It doesn't work in the first century. It doesn't work in the 21st century. And we've been in Romans now for, for nine months, so a long time. We've been in Romans, and over and over and over again, what Paul is saying is it doesn't work. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. So just stop. Last week he said, let your mind just be, or your, your mouth be silent. We cannot save ourselves. See, I, now, I, I know what you're thinking. Because it's a common Christian sort of parlance or common thing for us to say that we can't save ourselves. Nobody's perfect. Nobody can save themselves. This is something that we constantly talk about and at least freely admit. But we still try, don't we? We still try. We, we, we try to, to gain his attention in our salvation, but also in the way that we daily live our lives as followers of Jesus. We still try to save ourselves, to make things work out by works of the law, by our own righteousness, by our own effort. And so today I want to talk about that. I want to specifically talk about how, how it is that we try to save ourselves and what kind of world uh, this leads to when we persistently try to save ourselves. What particular kind of church, what kind of religious uh, community, what kind of spiritual family we become when we constantly are trying to save ourselves. See, one place it leads to uh, us is in this divided and contentious church is that it helps us to understand what it means to seek unity and peace together. So we'll get there too. First of all, though, Let's clarify this idea of works of the law. You'll notice in Romans 3 verse 20 that he uses that, that phrase, that for by works of the law. What exactly is Paul talking about? This is a really important phrase. In, in the Greek, it's two different words brought together. It's the word works or ergon, where we get our word for energy in English. And it's the word for law or namos in the original language. So ergon namos, works of the law. And this phrase occurs eight times in Paul's writings. So it's something that he is familiar with, a, a phrase that he is, uh, he uses with some consistency. And in every case, Paul has salvation in mind. In, in other words, he's, he's, he's communicating a kind of way that, that we do try to save ourselves at a salvific and soul level. And it's always used negatively. In, in, in other words, he's never encouraging us to participate in works of the law that, that lead to salvation, but ultimately that this is our effort that leads to our demise, and it doesn't actually work out. So what we surmise, not just from uh, Romans 3.20, but all of Paul's usage of works of the law is that works of the law don't save. They don't save us. They don't justify. Following and obeying the law does not make you righteous. So what exactly is Paul getting at? Some modern uh, thinkers would suggest that Paul understands the poisonous nature of religion in general. And this is what he is talking about, that ultimately doing works of the law is, is sort of evil, that, that, that these things are, are toxic, that religion itself is toxic. The problem with this particular viewpoint of thinking that, that, the, that the law itself 
is toxic is that it's the law given to us by God. And in fact, later on in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy, Paul says, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's Romans 7 verse 12. And James, the, the writer of the book by his, by his name, calls the law the royal law and the law of liberty, not, not oppressive regulations, but demonstrations of the righteousness of God. So the law is not the problem. Obeying the law is not the problem. And we, we cannot cast either aside as the real issue here. That's not the problem with works of the law. So what is it? It's not the law. It's not our obeying of the law. Paul's meaning of works of the law is not that obedience is somehow evil, but that our obedience is never enough and it's never fully possible. In other words, our works are not sufficient. Our works are never perfect. The purpose of the law, though, was never about giving us a clear path to our own salvation. Not even the Jewish people in the Old Testament believed this or saw this or were meant to adopt this from the scriptures because David, King David, the great psalmist, draws on the silence that we learned about uh, from last week in verse 19. And he says this in Psalm 61, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him, comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. You see, God is our salvation, not the law, not our own obedience, not we ourselves. Church, God is our salvation. Always. Do you see? Works of the law can't save because the law was never meant to save. We were not meant to be our own saviors. God did not give us the law and say, here's how you save yourselves. This is how we often think about it. That God says, here's how you can please me. Now get to it. Start doing things that please me. Start saving yourself. Start working for yourself. Start doing the things that I've called you to do. After all, what's worked its way into sort of religious sentimentality is that God helps those who help themselves. Well, this is not biblical. That ultimately God does not give us things to do so that we can be uh, somehow now good candidates for him to help out. See, God has always intended in and of himself to be the savior of his people. He needed no help. He needed no aids. He did not need you. He did not need the law. He always intended that he would be our savior. So what was or what is the purpose of the law? If it's not meant to save and obedience isn't the problem, the law isn't the problem, and yet Paul has a very clear disdain for works of the law. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, again, this is our primary text. Let's make sure that we understand it, that for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, works of the law don't justify because through the law comes knowledge of sin. In, in other words, that's the purpose. The law was not meant to save you. It wasn't given for that purpose. Instead, the law was always meant to show you you need saving. The law was always meant to show me that I need saving. This is the purpose of the law that Paul writes about. Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. Are you with me? Therefore, since the law is not our savior, and since we couldn't, wouldn't, and don't uh, fulfill the law, what the law does do is reveal sin. That's what Paul says. Through the law reveals sin. And when Paul speaks about the law... It's this concept of the fullness of the Old Testament. He doesn't just have some books of the Old Testament in mind or, or certain categories in mind. And we know this because he has just gotten done quoting the Psalms in Romans chapter 3 to help us see that no one is righteous, no, not one, and that every mouth must be silent because we no longer fear God. This is what he has just pulled out of the Old Testament, not in some categories, but all over the place, and particularly the Psalms. So the best way to read when Paul talks about works of the law is works categorized or taught in the Old Testament. And so what we should, should think about is in the fullness of God's word. That's the best way to read it. God's word reveals sin. As one commentator put it, that it is the straight edge of the law or God's word that shows us how crooked we are. It is the straight edge of God's word that shows us how crooked we are. So ultimately what Paul is getting at is that knowing 
the law reveals sin. Knowing true glory reveals idolatry. Knowing the truth reveals lies. Knowing good reveals evil. Knowing the creator reveals creation. Knowing the one true God reveals all falsehoods and facsimiles and made up deities. Are you with me yet, church? That ultimately what the law is given is this truth that would reveal sin. This means that contrary to modern Christian perception, sin is not merely revealed in our feelings of conviction or our agreement that something is in fact wrong. This is so critical that too often we believe that, that something is worthy of confession when we feel a certain thing, when we feel a certain way about it, or agree that something is in fact wrong. Sin, though, is missing the mark of God's word, not a misalignment of our feelings or a disappointment in ourself. So, so what we're talking about, real talk, is that we don't wait to confess our sin when we feel like it is sinful or when we feel ready to confess sin. We confess our sin when God's word says what we have done is sinful. This is so counterintuitive to the American ideal and the American consciousness that we need to just let that settle. That we confess sin, not because we feel like it is sinful or we have felt bad about what we have done. We confess sin when God's word says what we have done or what we have failed to do is sinful. Yes, the Lord does convict. But the conviction that comes is, is always coming through God's word. It's always coming by way of his spirit. And, and we may not always experience that conviction. We may not always feel a certain kind of way. Come here, son. We may not always feel a certain kind of way about our sin, but that is ultimately when we confess our sin. I love you. You need to go back up to bed, okay? I'll be up in a minute to say goodnight after daddy's sermon. I love you. Oh, I'll bring you a snack. Please go. Can I have, can I have some circle chips? Yes, please go. Like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yes, you may. Please, eight, chips. eight chips. You got it. Please go upstairs and stay in your bed. I love you very much. It's okay. I think you went back up. Where were we? See, ultimately, what we do is we confess sin. We confess sin when God's word calls us to do it. We confess sin when uh, ultimately the community even helps us to understand something that we haven't seen on our own through God's word and by his spirit. We are promised that we will be convicted, but it won't always be the experience that we expect. See, per our particular context, this means that the law then is what reveals sin. The law is not a weapon. The law is not a suggestion. It doesn't give into legalism and lawlessness that we've seen Paul write about previously, that the law's purpose is to reveal sin. Let's take Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 as an example. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, when we read this passage, we may think to ourselves, okay, self, today I will aim to reject selfish ambition and to not be conceited, and instead I will pursue humility in the form of considering others more important than myself. And that when my kid walks out in the middle of a sermon, I'll consider his needs more important than my own. God help us, this perhaps should be the aim. I actually have no idea how long he was there, so maybe it was mad uncomfortable or distracting to you. But we may purpose in our heads to do that. We may purpose in our heads that this is going to be the way I respond. This is how I apply this text to my life. And that's good. That's helpful. That, that, that's important. However, what we will find over the course of, let's say, a month of committing this verse to memorization and praying and meditating on this particular passage, let's say every morning that you just wake up and you read Philippians chapter two, verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition, vain conceit, and others consider others' needs more important than yourself, others more uh, as significant than, than myself. At the end of that month, you may in fact become more humble. You, you may in fact uh, have rejected some ambition. You may have rejected some pride and conceit. But I think what we will discover, and what I know that I have discovered with greater clarity 
um, through that kind of practice, that kind of spiritual discipline, what we will discover with much more significance than simply doing things more humbly is how much that ambition and conceit drive us. Are you tracking with me? That I won't just start doing things better, but actually what this scripture that I'll continue to meditate on, it will continue to expose ways and things and aspects in my heart where, where ambition and conceit had gripped hold of my life and I wasn't even aware of it. Where pride had made a home and I had no idea. See, it, it's revealing. It doesn't just give me instruction. It reveals truth. We may have never felt any feelings of remorse or conviction or guilt or shame about pride or about ambition or about conceit. And yet the law begins to bring out things in our heart into the light that were otherwise hidden. See, if the law, God's word was our salvation, then we'd have to regularly pursue the virtues of this text every day without flaw and without fail. But practically, experientially, that's not what Philippians chapter 2 verse 3's most powerful contribution is to our spiritual imagination and our spiritual story. It doesn't just tell us what to do. It opens our eyes. The scriptures open our eyes to who we are and what we have done. And what's wild is that our feelings about how we have lived and how we are living may in fact never change. We depend on our feelings way too much. They are good, they are God-given, but, but ultimately it is the word of God, it is his law that reveals sin. See, we're not responding to bad feelings about ambition or lacking pride or being conceited. We are submitting to the truth that has been revealed through and in and by God's word. So here's what we've learned. That the works of the law can't justify. Obedience doesn't save us. Why? Because the law is not our savior and we are not our saviors. Then what is the purpose of the law? The law reveals that we need saving. The law reveals sin and therefore the law reveals that we need saving. So the law is not our savior. The law reveals that we need one. The law is not our savior. The law reveals that we need one. As we've already noted, God himself was meant to be our savior, that God was meant to be the savior of his own people. So from eternity past, his intention was created, was rather to create a people who were necessarily dependent upon him. He would not give us a law to mediate a relationship with him. He would not give us independent power to keep ourselves righteous for him. To be mature in Christ is to be increasingly aware and surrendered to our own dependency upon him. To grow up in Jesus is not about increase, becoming increasingly self-sufficient. That's the American ideal. That's American maturity. That's individualism, not the gospel. To grow up in Jesus is to daily understand, confess, and even celebrate that we can't save ourselves, but only Christ alone can justify. How? How does he do this? After all, it's this common Christian idea that we can't save ourselves. And we love to say that Jesus saves, but do we actually know how Jesus saves? Do we actually know what he has done to justify us? Because knowing how Jesus justifies enhances our dependency upon him. Not simply because we know more about what he's done for us intellectually, but the more we behold him, the more we are overwhelmed by his gracious work on the cross, in the resurrection, in the ascension, the more we see his worth and beauty, the more of his glory shines through, the more our hearts melt because of his affection, his great affection for us. See, we know him better, yes, but we also learn to wholly trust the one who loved us so. See, Jesus is the one who justifies, and he is the one who justifies because he alone is God's righteousness. He alone justifies because he is the one who bore the wrath of God. Jesus justifies us because then he, he doesn't just have righteousness and he doesn't just bear the wrath, but then he imparts to us the righteousness of God. By grace, through faith in him, he makes us new. He makes us righteous. He gives us his righteousness. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And then 
in, in sort of this simultaneous kind of way, as he bestows upon us his righteousness, he proclaims over us that we are justified. He makes us righteous with his own righteousness, and then he proclaims, announces our innocence, announces our righteousness. He, he heralds it. He, he preaches it. This is so good. This is what God always intended. God always intended on being your Savior in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The law does not save. The law reveals that we need saving. The law then is the ultimate signpost pointing us to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's consider again Philippians chapter 2. Having established that verse 3 does the work of revealing pride and arrogance and conceit and selfish ambition, we are called then to pursue humility. But Paul then, from verses 5 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2, points us to Christ, exalts Christ, gets our eyes on Christ. So the law revealed our sin and then pointed us not just to obedience, not to an emotion, not to ourselves to sort of try harder, but points us to Christ. See, Jesus not only was humble, but through his work on the cross, the scriptures tell us that we can have this mind among ourselves, which is it's ours in Christ Jesus, that he gives us a new mind. That's Philippians chapter 2. This is the law at work in our lives, not just telling us what to do, but revealing the condition of our soul. See, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 reveals no sin in Jesus. So our hope, when we fall short of not just one verse, but the entirety of the scriptures, but even just one verse, or even just one idea, or even just one teaching, let alone the wholeness of the teachings of Jesus and his word, the, the, the thing that we get to do, the signpost there of the law, is that we get to set our eyes on Christ, the one who fulfilled the law, and therefore he is righteous one who bore the wrath of God, who is therefore able to bestow upon us, impart to us the righteousness of God, and then announces righteousness over us. So since the law doesn't save us, we may assume that our, our obedience to the law doesn't matter. But that's not true. But we obey the law for Jesus' sake. Jesus is why we still obey the law or perform works of the law. Not for ourselves or not for our salvation, but in our sanctification. The law points us to Jesus, and through knowing and obeying the law, we grow in intimacy and dependency upon him, even in the likeness of Christ. We become like him. But it's good to feel this tension, this tension of these works of the law about how they ought to be placed, not for my salvation, but in my sanctification process. Let's put it this way, that works of the law don't save us, but works of the law reveal that Jesus has saved us. See, our obedience to God's word doesn't justify us. It demonstrates that we have been justified. We are not saved because we live differently than other people according to God's word, but because we have been saved according to God's word, we live differently. So we don't abandon the law and, and the word of God. We cling to it. This, this tension persists because the gospel is one truth and it's countless truths. It's one thing and it's many things. Or as, as I've heard it said, the gospel is one, but it has many forms. See, the gospel is simple yet multifaceted. One way to think about this is that there is, an, there is a gospel announcement, there's a gospel story, and then there's two gospel implications. There, there's a centerpiece to the gospel. This is the announcement. There is the composition of the gospel. This is the story. And there are these two realities or implications that are birthed or come to bear as a result of the gospel. So the announcement of the gospel, the good news is that Jesus is Lord. The, the gospel is never less than this, but it is so much more. Because from that announcement, the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. It's that announcement. It's that reality. It's Jesus himself, right? This is the gospel announcement. This, this is the centerpiece of the gospel. But from there, we get the composition. We get the story. We, we get all of these details that, that Jesus lived perfectly, that Jesus died sacrificially, that Jesus uh, was raised, uh, or rather buried uh, literally, and that Jesus was raised victoriously, and that Jesus ascended authoritatively. So the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus all demonstrate his lordship to us. There's the composition or story 
of the gospel. So we have the announcement, we have the story or composition, and then from there, we have these two implications of the gospel. From the gospel announcement and from the gospel story, all of which we get summarized really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But there are, these two realities are born out of that announcement, born out of the story. And because left to themselves, the story and the announcement don't really give us clarity about how it impacts our lives, how it impacts our existence. Thus, these two gospel implications taught in scripture are personal salvation and kingdom inauguration. Personal salvation and kingdom inauguration. That is to say, because of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done. Individual souls can be saved, can be forgiven, can be justified. But also, there is this new reality. The heavens are breaking in. The truths of the age to come are coming to bear through the lordship of Jesus in his first coming and will be fully advanced, will be fully come to bear, or will be completely completed, completely done when Jesus returns again. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains that he preached this gospel to his hearers that they would be saved. That's verses 1 and 2 in 1 Corinthians 15. But then he goes the rest of the chapter to explain the power of the lordship of Jesus, the resurrection power of the kingdom of God. And then he concludes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, this obedience to the law, works of the law within sanctification, do not save, but they bring about the salvation of souls and they bring the inauguration or rather the continuing coming of the kingdom of God. So we have a gospel message of individual justification, but we also have a gospel mission of cosmic renewal of the kingdom of God coming. Both are works of the law that, that reveal we have been saved by Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, your soul and mine can be justified and his kingdom is advancing, not, not by works of the law, but by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we participate in that through obedience to his word. That's the gospel. I'd, I'd like to take the rest of our time knowing the gospel in its context here within the law take the rest of our time to explain why this is such a powerful passage, Romans 3, verse 20, and, and its implications within the context of the gospel, within the context of what Paul is teaching here, uh, to bring unity and order and peace in the middle of such division. See, if this is the truth and beauty of Jesus, if this is the announcement and the story and implications um, about um, what we are supposed to be committed to, then, then why are we as a people so divided? See, if, if there's clarity around the gospel, announcement, story, implications, why are we so divided as a people? See, it's easy to talk about the division in our country, in our nation right now. That's an easy target. Let's talk about the division within the church. Because that division within the church needs to be understood and reconciled first before we dare go out into a divided Republican, Democrat, progressive, uh, conservative multi-ethnic, different views on a pandemic, all of the division out in our country, we need to first make sure that we are a unified people, right? And so how do we do that? I think this verse really helps lead us in that direction, but ultimately the fullness of the gospel certainly does this. And in order to really see that, let's take a little bit of a history lesson to understand that the moment in time of where we are and, and how we have gotten there, particularly in response and, and our understanding of the law, of what it means to, to follow God's word. So first, what we're going to do is look at a movement known as evangelicalism. You may have heard this before. You may have identified with it. You may have no idea what that word means at all. And that's okay. See, evangelicalism was birthed in the United States with a heavy emphasis on evangelism, on sharing the message that 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 announcement of the gospel, of the personal, the, the, the personal implications and the personal salvation bit of the gospel. And it still remains a forceful power in our country. And according to Professor uh, Kristen Kobes Dumais, some of the earliest seeds of evangelicalism can be found in the 1920s and then grows a little bit 
even uh, in stability in the 1940s and the 1950s, but really comes onto the scene in the 1970s. And what you have there in the 1970s is not only this focus on personal evangelism and saving people from hell, uh, but also there's these mass crusades happening of people to hear that gospel, to get people in the arena to hear this gospel message. So those sorts of things are happening. But also you have this evangelical idea give birth to the religious right, and, and all of a sudden presidential elections are beginning to be affected by evangelicalism and this group of followers of Jesus. And so, among other things, the critiques outside of the evangelical movement is that its emphasis is only on one of these two gospel implications, on personal salvation, not kingdom inauguration, and not, not cosmic renewal. And, and it's important even to, to understand the, the historical space that this is in, that to this day, that evangelicals are comprised of about 76% 76, 76 of white people. This is from the Pew Research Center. So to be fair, many who are part of the evangelical movement would uh, believe that they are fulfilling the kingdom or, or seeing the kingdom come through personal salvation as more and more souls are justified then, more and more of the kingdom of God comes to bear. So because of that particular paradigm, what, what we have seen birthed out of the evangelical movement is, is a kind of view of the law that has even been weaponized. Weaponized as a way of communicating or really of, of revealing a kind of legalism that has solidified and calcified within the movement. Hence, then, the, the evangelical worldview is often indistinguishable from American individualism because the work of the kingdom becomes the cherry on top of individuals going to heaven when they die. So you have this one movement and one response of the law, believing that the law really is uh, something that, that gets me um, into heaven, and therefore the messaging becomes pretty weaponized and legalistic. In juxtaposition to evangelicalism, there's a separate movement com comprised primarily of black churches, mainline Protestant churches, and even some streams of the Catholic Church. In this movement, the coming kingdom is primary, is the primary focus, seeing the liberation of people from, from poverty, inequality, racism, evils of capitalism, and the like. These are works of the gospel. The lordship of Jesus is central in this movement, but the focus of his lordship is less about the conversion of sinful souls and much more about the conversion of communities and cities and countries and the entire globe into a place that reflects the kingdom values of passages like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This view is summarized well by James Cone in his seminal work, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and he writes that the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus and Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. This is a high view of the kingdom of Jesus, and certainly of Jesus himself, and the power of the resurrection laying hold of the world. But ultimately, what, what, what takes place is this kingdom ethic can be, become so absorbent, so holistic, that the law becomes a mere suggestion. That ultimately, some of the teachings, particularly the ethical and social teachings of the scriptures, become suggestions and not things that we apply to our life today, but things perhaps that were contextualized to particular people at a particular time. That now it is about loving people and seeing a whole world renewed in the, the will and way of the kingdom of Jesus. Hence, the, the kingdom viewpoint is often indistinguishable from sort of a secular view of a earthly utopia because being saved by King Jesus can become incidental to the kingdom work itself. So do you see, though this is, this is why there's such division in the church, that we may agree on the gospel announcement, we may agree on the, the gospel storyline, we can, we can agree that Jesus is Lord, we can agree that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, and we remain divided because of the implications of the gospel. And honestly, it's within those implications where we function most of the time, not just in his lordship and not in the story of the gospel, but in these two implications. Is my main role to tell people about Jesus and get them saved, or is it to participate in a kingdom renewal, a cosmic, holistic renewal of this world? 
Now, now, why does all of this matter? Well, doesn't don't these groups sound you know a lot like Christian conservatives and Christian progressives? Here's what we need to learn: that depending on which side you identify with or are more naturally inclined to to err upon, you need to hear from the other side. Those are brothers and sisters in Christ. Not not only so that we can become sort of this balanced people, right, within this American system. That, that's not why we do that, but rather because it is the fullness of the gospel, or as Paul has put it, that through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, when I hear that opposing view and that, that understanding of, of this personal salvation, or when I hear this idea of kingdom inauguration, I hear both of those things get revealed in me, just like the law reveals that when we build our faith upon one implication and not the other, we are doubtlessly in sin because we are not living in accordance with the fullness of God's word and his gospel message and his gospel mission. And can I just say, after such a contentious election cycle, we need to confess sin. We need to know what the law is revealing in our hearts, and we need to understand how these implications of the gospel reveal sin in my heart and in yours. See, our way, our party, does not embrace the fullness of the gospel in the kingdom of Jesus. And while the whole country, hear this, is looking for someone to blame, what if the church was busy confessing sin? What if while everybody was looking for someone to point the finger at, what if the Christians, what if you, what if I were allowing God's word to reveal sin and we would respond in confession and forgiveness? See, that's one thing no one is doing right now. Confessing sin, forgiving each other, and trusting in King Jesus. Can you even imagine if we started doing that? See, through Acts, the early church is revealed to be a completely countercultural community. Scholar Larry Hurtado argues that this unique people developed a set of values within pagan society, which made them category-defying and I want to suggest to you, we ought to be category-defying today. In his book, Destroyer of the Gods, Hurtado uh, explains that the early Christian community had five distinct values, five distinct social values. The first was racial justice. They, they uh, not only sought unity, but they, their communities, their churches were comprised of men and women across racial and ethnic barriers. Uh, they, they had, secondly, economic views of justice, that they would take care of the poor, that people were not left to fend for themselves. Thirdly, they understood a particular kind of commitment to what we may call a traditional sexuality. In other words, heterosexual monogamy within marriage. Not, not only that, but they had a commitment to be pro-life. They were constantly caring for discarded children, those who were left abandoned to fend for themselves even right after childbirth because a family, a person, did not want that child. And fifthly, finally, they were a conciliatory community. In other words, they confessed wrong and wrong things that they did, and they forgave each other when they had been wronged. So now, as I heard one pastor, Tim Keller, addressed these values this week. It was clear, and I think it should be for us, don't you think? Two of these values seem a lot like Democrats, right? Seem a lot like this view of the kingdom of God, that racial and economic justice view. But two of these values seem incredibly Republican. They, they seem like the evangelical viewpoint, pro-life and traditional sexuality. So the early church was category-defining. They were not a little bit of one group and a little bit of another. They were a completely different third way. They were neither, in our language, Republican nor Democrat, neither evangelical nor simply about the kingdom of God. They were a completely different community and different group of people, this completely different way. So it's not surprising then to see how and why they grew as they did in the early church, not only in number, but also in commitment and fidelity and Christ-likeness, despite the suffering that they went through. Hurtado writes, 
By contrast, the growth of Christianity in its three centuries, the most crucial period was largely by a combination of the power of persuasion, whether in preaching or an intellectual argument, miracles exhibiting the power of Jesus' name, and simply the moral suasion of Christian behavior, including martyrdom. Essentially what he says is the reason that the church grew was because they had two implications. They preached the gospel and they lived it out. They preached personal justification and they believed in and, and worked towards, if you will, kingdom inauguration, kingdom advancement, seeing the kingdom of God come. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine what would happen in our community, in our country, through suffering and miracles, through the proclamation of, of the, the gospel, through gospel words and gospel powers, if we trusted the Lord enough to believe the whole gospel and all of its implications? Can you even imagine what would take place if we were a people confessing our sins while a whole country was blaming somebody else? Perhaps one of the most notable of the values, if not the most notable value of the early church was their conciliatory nature. They sought forgiveness and they gave forgiveness. They confessed sin because the law was revealing sin and they forgave one another. They reconciled with one another. In order to do so, they had to allow God's word to not only be read in their presence, to not only read it on their own, but to trust that God's word was true and it was good. It was living and active. It was sharper than any two-edged sword. It cut to the point of bone. Like it, it, it cut both ways. It comforted the afflicted and it afflicted the comfortable. Seeking forgiveness is not about emotions. It's not about feeling a certain kind of way. It's not about feeling sorry. Forgiveness begins by allowing God's word to tell us the truth about ourselves and the truth about who he is. Forgiveness begins by allowing the law to reveal sin. It's agreeing with God that we have not obeyed his word, that we have not obeyed the law. It's coming to God and each other and admitting that we cannot save ourselves, that in fact, we need forgiveness. In order to truly live this third way in a divided nation, we need to allow the scriptures to reveal our sin, reveal our need to confess sin. And we need to do it, church. We may not be able to change the entire country right now and in holistic ways, but what we can do right now is to live toward reconciliation and under the power of the ministry of reconciliation with the people in your group with the people in your home, to not harbor bitterness toward your brother or sister, to not, to not be frustrated, to not be grieved, to not be angry, to not persist in sin, but to actually walk in the light as he is in the light, that we might have fellowship with one another and fellowship with God's spirit. See, scripture reveals these sorts of things, and our response is to confess sin and to, to know that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, in doing so, works of the law are put in their proper place. Works of the law don't save us. Works of the law reveals that Jesus has saved us. And can you even imagine if that kind of message, that kind of ethic, that kind of third and di completely different way was what the world saw right now? Is people confessing their sins, their minds being renewed because Jesus has saved them. See, our obedience to God's word does not justify us. It demonstrates that we have been justified. We are not saved because we live differently than other people, but because we are saved, we live differently. The law is not a weapon. The law is not a suggestion. The law reveals sin and it points us to Christ. This is what leads to both a gospel message that Jesus is Lord and a gospel mission, seeking to see the realities of heaven come right here and right now, that people, that souls, that specific individuals would be saved, would be justified, and that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God, may it be so. May we confess our sin. And may your church truly be the context and the people that sees your kingdom not simply inaugurated, not simply coming more and more each day, but one day fully revealed and fully here at the second coming of you, Lord Jesus. So we ask that you would do this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.